in uh, reflecting a bit over the year that was 2020, and I imagine we're getting tired of talking about this by now, but I think there's probably just a lot we can glean from it. It was an odd year in so many ways, right? I mean, we've fresh in our mind. 2020 started pretty innocently, like uh, about any other year would, but ended anything but normal due to COVID. Um, And kind of thinking back over the year, when you think about the stock market, for example, it was a year that saw the stock market drop by 30%, which is newsworthy enough. But that same year saw the stock market rise by 50%. I mean, it's just crazy, the swings that we saw there. Uh, It was a year that students were begging to go to school. Did you ever think you'd live to see that? Students wanted to go back to school. Let's let's not forget about that (laughs) that that took place. Um, It it was it was also a year for Megan and I where we actually uh, refinanced our home two different times in 2020 and that, that was never the plan. But interest rates had dropped from from when we had taken out our original mortgage, and so we refinanced toward the beginning of the year. And then just the way things turned out, interest rates dropped again so much during the year that it made sense to to refinance it once again. And, uh, and, And while I was quite thrilled with the amount of money that we'd be able to save as the result of doing that, There was a part of me that was a bit sad for the forest of trees that gave its life so that we could refinance our house two times in one year. I I mean, you've been through this process before? Uh, Original mortgage or a refinance. It can't be an exaggeration to say that each loan probably required a couple hundred sheets of paper with everything printed up on it. And and of course, our signature is required on what seems like every one of them, right? You almost get hand cramps by the time you're done signed your name so many times, but, uh, you know, our loan officer was, uh, was great in explaining to us each document that we were signing and what it meant. And I can't blame the bank for doing it, but, but they sure draw up a document that protects themselves in about any way imaginable, <laughs> right? They're, they protect themselves from catastrophes and misuses of the house or even deception on our part as people borrowing money, and and it's almost like you feel the pressure building with each signature that you put down. You know, I'm entering into this binding contract, which I don't fully uh, understand, but I am going to be held fully responsible for it should something happen, right? So, and and there's protections for Megan and I as homeowners in there too, but I'm confident the bank is protecting themselves more than (laughs) we're probably protecting ourselves. Uh, and uh, now a mortgage, uh, that, that's perhaps one of the more significant contracts into which a person uh, might enter in today's world. But it's not the only one. Uh, I mean, our world is one that is full of different contracts. Uh, every time you swipe your credit card, you essentially are entering a contract. We don't think of it that way, but that's essentially what we're doing. Uh, when we buy any kind of item that includes a warranty, we're entering a contract. Uh, When we get a cell phone, we're entering a contract. Even when you go to the post office and ship a package, you are entering a a contract with the post office. So we might not think about it often, but but contracts are just a normal part of our everyday life. Uh, You might say it's the fine print that keeps the world's relationships humming along. 
And, you know, when you think about our world today and the world of the Bible, there's lots of ways that those worlds are different. But some things are very similar, and, and this importance placed upon contracts is one of those similarities. So in the culture of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, those formal relationships wouldn't have been called contracts, but, but instead as covenants. That's really more the word that, that, that we use there is covenants. And what I wanted to do before examining some different covenants that we see in the Bible is to give some background on covenants at that time. Because when we understand a little more of what that context was like, some of this you know, starts to come to light a bit more. There's enough difference between our culture and, and that culture that, that uh, it's worth highlighting. So, so the first thing we have to know about the world of the Bible is that it was a society in which people belonged to certain classes. You belonged to a certain class or a certain group. And, and while many of our contracts today are entered into by, by people of pretty much equal status, uh, that was less common in the ancient Near East. Um, most covenants were formed between two individuals or two groups of people from different social classes or different economic classes or, or different political classes. And those contracts or those covenants were not always entered into mutually. It was not always a mutual thing. Commonly, one party either felt like they had no option but to enter a covenant or they really had no option but to enter into this covenant. So for example, there were different types of covenants. There's one that's fun to say called a suzerainty covenant. It comes from the word suzerain. A suzerain was a nation or a king or an overlord that exercised control over a group of people. And so quite often this kind of covenant came about because a, a king conquered a new area, for example. So the residents of that area could choose to accept the, consequent, uh, accept the, the terms of the covenant or they would suffer the consequences of not accepting those terms. And so the terms of the covenant all often included the, the king or the ruler giving protection to those people, of course, in exchange for taxes, military support, lack of rebellion against the king. So you could accept those terms or you could reject them, which would not turn out well for you as a person who had just been conquered. Um, there were things called patron covenants, and, th and these were really common everyday ones. The these covenants existed between someone of a high-ranking class and someone of a low-ranking class. So you had the patron and the client in that type of a covenant. The patron was generally wealthy, or, or they held social status, which they used to benefit the client in turn for offers of political support or honor, which was huge in that culture. They would honor the patron or, or sometimes insider information like word on the street kind of stuff that they would share with the patron. Um, and, and as I said earlier, there, there were some parity covenants where two equal parties would enter into a covenant together. But, but the thing to take away from all of this is, is that the ancient Near East was a culture in which people resided in clearly defined classes that interacted with one another through covenants. A covenant was often a way for a relationship to be formed where there would not ordinarily have been one. 
That's the main thing to take away from it. And I think that's a good way to think about our relationship with God. God most definitely resides in a different class than we do. Is that fair to say? And there's no requirement for him to have a relationship with us. And yet, through different covenants that we're going to look at, he has made the way for that to happen. He has created a way for there to be a relationship where there would not ordinarily have been one. So, so let's dive into these. We're going to do what we've been doing and, and starting in Genesis, the first few chapters of Genesis. We're going to see where this theme of covenant comes up, and then we're going to kind of trace that uh, through the Bible as God interacts with his people. So the first covenant is, is sometimes called the Edenic Covenant. And it comes from passages we've already studied in, in this series. In Genesis chapter 1, verses uh, 28 through 30, we see a covenant where God promises to bless Adam and Eve uh, while they are called to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Uh, if you continue on in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we see that God has given to Adam every tree of the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Mankind is to not eat from that tree. And, and, and there's not really kind of the common covenant language in these first two chapters, but, but there are clearly promises made by God and expectations given to mankind. We see that in these first few chapters. The, the assumption is that if this covenant is upheld by both parties, then the outcome will be one of harmony and, and flourishment. But it doesn't take long before Adam and Eve break that covenant. We probably know the story. And, and we'll examine the details of temptation and sin uh, and death later on in this sermon series, but we know without question that they broke the covenant by eating from the tree that they were commanded not to. And so as a result, we see another form of covenant in Genesis chapter 3. This time, God promises both curses and blessings. Now, now the curses are pretty easy to spot. In verse uh, 14, we see the curse spoken by God over the servant. Uh, serpent, excuse me. Uh, in verse 16, we see the curse spoken over the woman. In verses 17 through 19, we see the curse spoken over man. Uh, but as I said, there's also a promised blessing to mankind. In, in verse 15, God states that through the offspring of mankind, the serpent's head will be crushed. So even in the midst of the curses spoken here, there's a wonderful promise given. And there isn't anything there isn't anything in this covenant that is reliant upon mankind. It, is, it consists solely of God's promises regarding what he will do moving forward. Now, the first time that we get kind of a, a covenant that utilizes the typical language and symbols of that time period is, is Genesis chapter 8. So I'd encourage you just to turn there if you've got your Bibles open. Uh, th this is the covenant that God makes with Noah. So after, after the flood, after exiting the ark, Noah builds an altar and he makes sacrifices to God. The, the shedding of blood was a common way to seal a covenant in that culture. Upon seeing and smelling the sacrifice, we see in chapter 8 
uh, verse 21, that God promises to never curse the ground again or, or strike down every living creature. And, and then he goes on in chapter 9, uh, verse 11, he says he'll never destroy the earth through a flood again. And then the commands given to Noah and his family in this covenant uh, and those who would come after them are seen in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And, and there's all kinds of echoes back to the first covenant with Adam and Eve. They're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They're, they're to have dominion over the earth. Uh, they are now allowed to eat plants and animals. Uh, but they must not eat the blood of animals, and they're also commanded not to shed the blood of fellow mankind. And then finally, the, the sign of this covenant is, is the rainbow, right? That's the sign of this covenant that God has entered into with Adam, uh, excuse me, with Noah and his descendants. If you continue through Genesis, we get to another covenant that we need to highlight. And, and I know we're going through these rather quickly, but uh, stick with me. When we get to the end, we're going to take a step back and, and, and draw some conclusions by looking at the, the big picture perspective. So, so hang in there this morning. Um, in Genesis chapter 12, uh, chapter 15, chapter 17, God's making a covenant with Abraham. In this covenant, Abraham is to leave his country leave his people, leave his, his father's household, and go to the land that God would show him. God promises then to make Abraham a great nation and to bless him. Um, Abraham's descendants will be able to be counted as easily as you can count the stars in the sky. So we see the, the command given to, to Abraham. We see the blessings promised by God. The covenant was then sealed in chapter 15. This crazy picture, at least by our perspective, where Adam, uh, Abraham cuts some animals in half, and then later that night, God himself, in the form of a fire pot and a flaming torch, passes between the pieces. Again, this is such a foreign picture to us, but this is the shedding of blood sealing the covenant between God and between Abraham. And then finally, the covenant contained a sign as well. In chapter 17, we see that that sign is circumcision. Every male child eight days old was circumcised, and that was the sign of this covenant between God and Abraham and Abraham's descendants who would come after him. Well, as we move out of Genesis, we get to the, uh, probably what's the most famous covenant in the Old Testament, it's in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. It takes place at the base of Mount Sinai. It's where God enters into a covenant with the nation of Israel. It starts by God reminding the people of who he was, how he had brought them out of slavery with his mighty hand. He promises to make the people his treasured possession. And then the people were commanded to act according to the Ten Commandments and, and the other laws that God would give them as well. And as with the other covenants, this one was also instituted by the shedding of blood. So in Exodus chapter 24, uh, animals were sacrificed and some of the blood was then poured out on the altar and the rest of the blood was uh, thrown on the people. And again, picture that we're just not used to, 
But it's this, this sealing. It was really a common covenant ritual of sealing the covenant between God and the people of Israel. And then finally, just as with the other covenants, a sign is given as well. You see that in Exodus chapter 31. The sign of this covenant is the Sabbath that we talked about uh, a few weeks back. One more Old Testament covenant. The last one is the Davidic covenant. And this one is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So in, in this covenant, covenant with David, God promises to make for David a great name. Promises to appoint a place for the people of Israel. Um, give David rest from his enemies. That David's kingdom would be established forever. That he would always have a descendant to rule from the throne. Uh, and it's interesting that nothing's commanded of David in this covenant. There's no commands given to him. David actually desires to build God a house, uh, the temple, but it's God who says that, no, I'm going to build you, David, into a house. So it's kind of interesting. There's nothing commanded of David there. And, and there's not a mention um, of this covenant being sealed with blood, but there is a sign given. And the sign is the eternal throne promised to David and his descendants. As long as a descendant sat on the throne, that was the sign of the covenant. The covenant could not be mistaken. And so lastly, this morning, we get to the new covenant. The one in the New Testament to which all the other covenants point. And so we already read this morning from 1 Corinthians, but during the Last Supper, as he was with his disciples, Jesus made it clear that through him, a new covenant between God and man would be instituted. Jesus would give his life in order to secure salvation for sinful mankind. Um, Hebrews chapter 7 states that this is a better covenant. All the other covenants were simply shadows of this one that would come. And it's through this new covenant that we can ultimately find forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And that covenant was sealed by blood. And that one we can easily bring to mind, right? It was, except this time, it was not the blood of animals. It was the blood of Jesus himself that sealed the covenant. And the covenant is also marked, like the others, by two signs. Uh, baptism and the one which we'll participate in in just a little bit, communion. Those are the two signs of this new covenant. Both of those sacraments are reminders of the covenant under which we now function as God's people. So that, that was fast and furious overview there. And to be fair, we could study every one of those covenants more in depth than we did this morning. But what I want to do is look at all of them together and, and glean some takeaways that we might miss when, when we zoom in and really study just one of them to the exclusion of the others. And, and my hope is that by looking at these takeaways uh, this morning, that it will, it will prepare our hearts 
for communion and, and also for departing from this building and going out to worship and serve God. So some takeaways when we look at all this together. The, the first takeaway is that we as human beings are never in the position to set the terms of the covenant. The covenants that mankind enters with God are covenants between two beings of different classes. We already talked about that. And right in case we get any ideas, our class is not the upper one, just to make it clear. God is rightly the one who gets to set the terms of his covenants with mankind. And, and you see some of this language through the, the Old Testament covenants. Um, for example, when God speaks with Noah, he says in Genesis 6:18, I will establish my covenant with you. God doesn't come to Noah and say, hey, let's strike up a covenant. Seems like it'd be fun to have a relationship with you. God says, I'm going to give you my covenant, Noah. Same thing with Abraham. He tells Abraham, this is my covenant with you. Now, if we're honest, there's probably times in our lives where we would like to set the terms of our relationship with God. And if we're really honest, there's times where we try, isn't there? Uh, you know, whether it's through bartering or bargaining with God or begging God, we seek to form our own covenant where we do a certain thing and act a certain way, and then God, you'll do your part, what I want you to do. That, that's, honestly, that's trying to change the terms of the covenant. But it's not how we interact with the God of the universe. Any covenant we are blessed to enter with God is set by him. It is his covenant. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't love us and he doesn't care about us. We'll look at that in just a little bit. But it does mean that he is above us and it's his right to set the terms of those covenants. There's a certain humility that we have to have in our covenantal relationship with God. And I think you see that through each one of these covenants as we trace them through Scripture. So I'd say that's the first takeaway. The second takeaway, we're talking about God's love. God pursues us. We see that in all these covenants as well. There does not have to be any type of covenantal relationship between God and his people. He is not lacking in any way and trying to get something from us to make himself more complete or more whole or, or whatever. You know, even in the ancient Near East, you know, those in the upper classes who were entering a covenant with someone over lower class, they were still looking to gain something, whether that was honor or political votes or whatever it was. They were trying to gain something. Not, not so with God. There is nothing that he tries to gain, nothing that he could gain from us. A covenant between us and him only exists because he pursues us and he wants a relationship with us. And, you know, John 3.16, for example, states it powerfully in that verse. It's because of God's love for the world that he came as a human to give his life in order to enact a new covenant. It's not that God needed something from us. It's not that he was trying to show off for somebody else. God loved us so much that he instituted this new covenant. 
And there may be days where you and I don't feel very worthy of being pursued by God. Don't we have those days? For whatever reason, we just don't feel worthy of that. But our feelings can betray us in that manner. God pursues us, and he offers us a covenant, which is for our flourishing. Um, Another takeaway that is brutally obvious in these Old Testament covenants especially is that we fail in our adherence to those covenants. Every one of them. I mean, it goes all the way back to the first one in Genesis 1 and 2. Continues throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Anytime there is a command or a requirement placed upon mankind, we fail. We fail in upholding it. Uh, a covenant is only as good as the ability of each parties to uphold it. We know that God never falls short in his covenants, so that leaves us as the party at fault for why those other covenants failed. Uh, you know, praise God that the new covenant is not based upon us. It's not based upon our faithfulness. There is a nothing in it that sits on our shoulders and is dependent upon us, and that is a great, great thing when we look at our history of keeping God's covenants. Some people will even refer to the, to the different covenants in the Bible as uh, covenants of works and covenants of grace. And so the, the Old Testament covenants that, that uh, required the people to uphold their end, follow certain commands, are considered covenants of works. But the new covenant, because it does not depend on our works, is sometimes called a covenant of grace. God, in his grace, has taken on the full responsibility for the terms of that covenant. And I'll say it again, that is a great, great thing. And when you take all of that together, I think we get the final takeaway. The three we've talked about flow right into this one. It's, uh, our only proper response is one of worship. That's where we are left when we think about this. A place of worship. When we recognize that we are not in position to set the terms of the covenant. When we recognize that God pursues us because of his love for us. And when we recognize that we repeatedly have failed to uphold his covenants, our only response is to worship God, to worship the God who has blessed us with such a wonderful new covenant that will never fail. In those uh, patron-client covenants of the ancient Near East, honor being given to the patron many times was a formal part of the covenant. Even if, even if the client didn't really respect the patron and honor the patron in their mind, they had to do it with their actions. It was written into some of those covenantal terms. With the new covenant in Jesus, that's not the case. Our failure to honor and worship him does not void the contract. It's not written into the terms. But it doesn't mean that we don't honor and worship him. Instead, it just means that our honor and worship ought to be totally voluntary, flowing from a heart of, of gratitude, of appreciation for him taking 
the full covenant terms upon himself and being responsible for them. I, you know, I said earlier that uh, covenants in, in uh, Bible times often created a relationship where they otherwise wouldn't have existed. Um, God's covenant with us creates a relationship with him that otherwise wouldn't have existed. Um, he's God, and, and we're not. Uh, without him pursuing us and without him entering into a covenant with us, we'd be forever cut off from him. I mean, th that would be the end of the story. But it's not just that God is a loving God who pursues us. That is true. In addition, the, the new covenant into which he entered with us was one that was very costly to him. And we have to do nothing more than look at the table here to be reminded of that. He took on the full terms of the covenant and enacted it through the sacrifice of his one and only son. What a, what a high cost to God to enter into this covenant with us. If that doesn't speak to his love of us, then what will? And, and I think we can also be uh, encouraged by the words from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. just want to read this for us. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. A death has occurred which not only institutes the new covenant, but brings redemption for our failure to uphold those other covenants. So not only does Jesus' blood institute the new covenant, but it covers us and provides redemption and forgiveness for our sins. And that's, that's what we remember this morning as we participate in this sign of the new covenant. So the elders are going to come forward and, and serve us this morning. And, and, and as they do, let's allow this sign of the new covenant to be a reminder to us of our relationship with God. Let's allow it to remind us of the terms of the covenant into which we've entered, terms that have been fulfilled completely by God himself. And then, as I said, let, let's, let's allow this to lead us into worship of our great God of the new covenant. As we do that, I, I do just want to uh, remind you, we still have some of the prepackaged elements in the bread trays. So if you'd like one of those, please, please grab one as it as it comes by. And and just also a reminder this morning that um, to participate in communion here, it is, it's not required to be a member of this church. It's not required to be a regular attender of this church. It's just required that you are a part of the church that you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and have truly entered into that covenant with, with God that we are remembering this morning. So let's do this together.